Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hi, I'm Alex Grodnick. This is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Today we're speaking with Chad Ritterson. Chad was an investment banker that found his true calling in growth hacking. What that means and how he growth hacked his own wedding. Coming up, just before, a quick reminder. Wall Street Oasis has spent years crafting the most comprehensive courses out there to help you get your dream job in investment banking. There's over 7,500 questions from over 460 investment banks, crowdsourced from the site's 500,000 members, and trusted by 20,000 aspiring investment bankers just like you. So check them out and say podcast is where you heard about it. Okay, that's it for me, Chad. Let's get going. Thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks for hosting. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, this is always fun. We've been talking for like 20 minutes before we even started recording. So you and I have a great rapport already. I'm sure this is going to go really, really well. It better. I mean, the pressure's on now. Yeah, it better. (laughs) Otherwise, I'm going to sick my dog on you. He's upstairs. He usually barges in here and starts barking in the middle of every single podcast. I told my wife, do not let Smith down this morning, please. (laughs) So, so yeah, welcome and thanks for being here. And, you know, you've got an interesting story, kind of corporate world to entrepreneurship world. Um, let's just jump right into the beginning. Where do sure. you go to school? What happened after school? All that. Yeah. Uh, USC, the University of Southern California, not to be confused with South Carolina, um, which in the investment banking world, a lot of people don't even know the difference. It was a non-target school, at least at the time when I was there. And then when I was graduating, it was 2000, well, it was supposed to be 2009. And I did the accounting track and it was just chaos in 2007 into 2008, the sky was falling. And I had done an internship where I was, had enough credits to pretend that I was a junior. So I did an internship with Deloitte and the intention was like, use that as the opportunity to go and get the big bulge bracket interview after that, or the big bulge bracket internship the year after. And then at the end of the end of the internship, I was like, oh my gosh, there's like no jobs for anybody. And so I took the bird that was in my hand and went, worked with Deloitte. And from there got this, the CPA and immediately bounced. And so that was like maybe 11 months or something into it. And I had a buddy that I'd kept in contact with from USC who was working at a boutique and they had an opening in their San Francisco office, and I hopped from LA to San Francisco in a weekend, and it was just like interview, 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 um, and I was there like on Monday, and so 
I was able to kind of sneak in off cycle through the boutique um, side of things. So that's how I first got into banking. Oh, cool. So there's two things there. The 09, that's when I graduated too. We both got jobs, super fortunate, knock on, knock on wood. But yeah. uh, I thought I was going to be working at Starbucks. It was just <laughs> like, and I mean, our career fair was the day after Bear Stearns collapsed. And like, there were signs for all the banks, like at their tables and none of them even showed up. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> uh, so that was hard. Um, so yeah, you got a, an accounting background and that's a super relevant background to investment banking. Yeah. I mean, I, the business school at USC, it's an aspiring business school and they, for whatever reason, wanted to grade on the super harsh curve. And a lot of it was super arbitrary. And I was like, all right, accounting, at least I can control. It's, it's numbers-based. And so I at least can control my result, which was you know, trying to go for the GPA. And so that's where the accounting school, um, not a lot of schools have accounting. And I was able to take advantage of that. And actually, even though I came in, I graduated high school in 2005. I was supposed to graduate college in 2009. I ended up graduating in 2008. So I was there for three years and then bounced. I was like 20 years old. And before starting at Deloitte, spent like the summer in Alaska decompressing and kind of preparing for what was, I guess, I kind of always wanted banking, but just had to be a little bit more patient with it. Right. And so that's great to have that patience. And so while you're doing this uh, CPA at Deloitte accounting, you still had it in your mind, okay, I'm getting banking. You're doing cold emails. You're trying to find banking jobs. I mean, right in the middle of the crisis, that could not have been easy. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm trying to remember. I, I, I wish, I, I don't think I did a whole lot of cold emails. Honestly, like, I, I know there was like, there's, there's a type of person who would go out there and would be very proactive. And I think what I was pretty intentional about was, um, I, I'm very much a person who fires bullets. And so I'm going to cultivate one really, you know, a couple really close relationships. And that's the one, um, this guy I rode with at USC who ultimately got into investment banking. And then I kind of went in through his recommendation. And there was a couple of other people that I had kept in contact with. I think maybe it was just because I was technically only in my second year. So I wasn't really thinking about it besides like, being in the investing society, I didn't do a whole lot of the coffees and the meetups and all that stuff. Um, and so I guess, I don't know. I, I feel like I had like two people I knew invest in banking and one of them got me the job. So I got maybe lucky, but a lot of it was something where I had a relationship that went back really far and it was an easy recommendation that he made for me. Right. Okay. Well, I like that. I mean, that speaks to the importance of building great relationships and proving that over time. So you did that. You got this job at a boutique bank up in San Francisco. What'd you do? What'd they focus on? All that. Yeah. So uh, it was a technology investment bank. Um, it was a company called Morgan Keegan, which then became part of Raymond James, I think it was. Um, the boutique stuff, they shuffle so fast. And um, it was... San Francisco, so there's a lot of tech up there. And I ended up getting, I was only there for a short period of time. So while I was there, I was um, working on a company that later got acquired by Skype. And so my boutique experience was very much, um, you would run the parallel process where it would be these small startup growth companies where you'd either be raising a growth round or you'd be going and trying to, you know, tongue in cheek, get these people like acquired. And so that was kind of the technology. I did a semiconductor, um, like secondary round, or it, there was a couple transactions I was working on there. And then really when I came back south to Santa Monica to a little boutique um, down, down in that area, 
that's where I really got into like the digital media and internet stuff. And so LegalZoom, I raised 67 million bucks or as part of the team that raised 67 million bucks for them. And that same founder is a guy by the name of Brian Lee. And Brian went and started Shoedazzle. And so I was doing like their early financial model. This is with Kim Kardashian and stuff. And, um, and then he did Honest Company almost immediately thereafter, right as Shoedazzle was taking off. Um, Honest Company is with Jessica Alba. And I did a little bit of work on that as well. Um, so that's where I guess it was internet and digital media was my transaction experience, all with private companies, and it was a mix between M and A and the private capital raise. Right. And so, I mean, what you're saying right now speaks pretty high for boutique investment banks. It was awesome because um, I think I wish I would have known. I, I, I kind of serendipitously fell into it, but if I'm sitting in the shoes of someone who's still in college it's their natural tendency to say bulge bracket, bulge bracket, bulge bracket. And it's like, you can't go wrong with that decision. But from a personal standpoint, the, by falling into the boutique, I got a lot, like I just developed really good relationships with a lot of entrepreneurs and the managing directors themselves. And I had a little bit more staying power. I, I was, I liked it a lot. I really liked it a lot. Um, and so I was in it for three years as an analyst. I did like the full three and that's where like throughout that process, I probably met with, if I were to guess like four or 500 different entrepreneurs and the conversation was always about growth because you know, they're here today. They want to be valued at this tomorrow. And so that really like, and this will segue into the next part of my career, but I really wanted to go on the other side of the table at that point. And, you know, I was trying to decide between venture capital and I never really looked at PE. I didn't really look at hedge fund. Um, but that boutique path, if you're looking to go VC is phenomenal. Or if you're looking to be an entrepreneur, it's going to give you the closest um, relationship and closest connection with that source of entrepreneurship. Right. And you're working at a bulge bracket or big bank. You're working with big companies. You're very far from the founders. You're very far from the entrepreneurial stuff. It's all just financial engineering, that sort of thing. So yeah. you're right. That's, that's great. So was, was it originally when you got the boutique job, was it originally going to be a step to a bulge? I, I never thought of it that way. Um, I thought of it as a step to VC. VC is like always kind of been out there like as the, the final destination for me. And so, you know, me mapping out the perfect career path was go because it was accounting. They were like, you should get a CPA because everyone's going to assume you're a CPA um, which I'm almost at this point, like, I don't want to say I'm embarrassed that I'm a CPA, but I've never even had it on my LinkedIn and like it sends people, but got a CPA. And then, so it was accounting, get that, and then go into banking, get that experience and then go entrepreneurial or operational and get that experience. And then I would be the perfect venture capitalist is that, that was like what I thought it would be on paper. Right. This is very well laid out. I mean, you've known for, I mean, you graduated school in three years, you've marched on this path. This is, you had some, some great foresight here. I, yeah, I mean, I, I do think about it actually a lot. Like, I, I, know, I know everyone listening is thinking about their career constantly and obsessing over it. Um, and that's like, I, for very, very few people, the final destination is invest in banking. And I would anticipate it's usually not the intention that people have when they go into it. Based on my just firsthand experience after I've been in the industry, a lot of the people that stay are the ones that come in at the associate level. And the analysts are the ones that go off into a variety of different directions and do crazy different things. Right. And that's just a function. I mean, I just graduated business school, had all these friends that are going to go be banking associates. Yeah. And I had to crush some of, <laughs> some of, <laughs> of their hopes. Like, oh yeah, I'm going to go do this for two years and do private equity. I was like, uh, 
I don't, I, I don't think so, man. <laughs> uh, that's not quite how, how it works. Um, yeah, there's a lot more exit opportunities for analysts than, than, than there are for associates. Associates are, you know, analysts happen to be very, very, very smart. They're, they're like you. They've built their whole lives kind of leading up to this investment banking job. They're also less expensive than associates. Associates are that's a good point. Um, very expensive. And so thinking about transitioning to the buy side, VC, hedge funds, private equity, whatever, you can have some smart kid who went to you know, USC or Penn or something who did banking for a year and a half, get them to come do um, private equity. They go to business school, they come back to private equity. So like that's who you're competing against when you're an associate. Yeah. They're paying these kids hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. and you're, you're an associate or an MBA trying to get a job like that. You're competing against people that have already done the job and you have to pay them a lot of money. It's, it's a tough sell. It's a tough sell, yeah. I do have, because on my drive over here, I was thinking of words of wisdom that are in part into you know future investment bankers especially at the analyst level because it is it's an endurance sport and it's very physical you're going without sleep and you know there's a lot of physicality to it and so my three recommendations that I came up with on my way over here look how prepared I am um, the first one would be living as close as conceivably possible to the office. And so I had two different investment banking experiences, one of which was a, like a 12-minute walk through the financial district in San Francisco. And um, it was, it, it, 12 minutes sounds like really close for a while. It was like the longest walk home at like four in the morning. I wanted to like slip my wrist. It was terrible. Um, the only positive thing of that is that I took a taxi, quote unquote, home, which allowed me, I, I bet they have Uber for now, and now they are able, not able to do now, this. But you expensed But that. I was able to expense that. So that was my little slush fund that I created for myself. But um, li that, living close to the office is what I did for my second boutique experience. I was like about a two minute walk from the office at that point. I lived on the promenade above Brookstone, and I worked like at a, the biggest building. We called it like the like the eye of Mordor. It was, it was like just you, the only big building in Santa Monica and that was two minute walk away. And so that way, like I could run home and shower really quickly and like all these ma magical benefits. So tip number one, live really, really, really close to the office. And then tip number two, you will pull all nighters and like, you're going to want to do it because if you don't, you're just like going to feel like you didn't really get the full experience. And so the all-nighter, the trick for me was sleeping through the sunrise. Even if it was like 20 minutes, usually you'll get at least 20 minutes. If you can sleep from the point of darkness and wake up in light, your body clock, circadian rhythm, whatever it is, like that was, if you're gonna get 20 minutes any time throughout that night, get it when it's transitioning from, from darkness to lightness. So that would be my tip number two. And then tip number three, we talked about it being like an endurance sport, a lot of physicality. Like, don't do drugs, man. Like, you, this includes caffeine. Like, I, I've been caffeine-free my whole life, so maybe I'm just a little bit preaching to my own choir here, my own echo chamber. But because, because you're going to have to be going so long, if you're working 100-plus hours a week, like, caffeine's going to spike your energy, and then you're going to trough. And this is not finals. This is finals week after week after week after week after month after year. And so you can't, like, if you, if you at all possible can come in caffeine-free and obviously, like, all the other drugs that you could potentially be doing, um, that is going to give you the, like, biggest chance for a three-year analyst stint or at least a happy two-year analyst stint. Love it. That's awesome advice. I'm going to put that in the title of the podcast. Okay. Chad's <laughs> three points of advice. Um, okay, so that's, that's about half the episode on banking now. 
no more banking. Yeah. Next part of your life. Yeah. So Dollar Shave Club was my first consulting engagement coming out of investment banking. It was actually a colleague of mine. Her husband was COO. This is 2012 in Santa Monica, which is where they're founded. And I was winding down my investment banking career, my analyst career there. And they needed some assistance. They wanted someone who could help with their international expansion strategies. So it kind of had this modeling and growth aspect to it. Um, and the, the video went viral. They were raising funds from Andreessen Horowitz. They had all these amazing things. And so at that point, I had, I had a couple decisions. It was, um, I had I'd done a couple VC interviews, one of which was with Andreessen Horowitz, actually. Um, this is before they were like, Andreessen Horowitz. This is like them starting out, um, which you knew they were going to be on a, a good trajectory, but that was um, one path that I was deciding between. The other path was going full-time with, um, with Dollar Shave Club, and things, things were taking off because the video... Have you seen the yeah, YouTube video? Of course, yeah. Okay, so the video was going nuts, like... But, you know, sitting in my investment banking seat, I was I, like, I, I wish <laughs> hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, they were willing to kind of true up my investment banking bonus with equity. And I was like, well, you know, a bird in hand, kind of like I said before. And, and I talked to my dad. He's a pretty conservative Midwestern dude. I'm from Minnesota. Um, he's like, no, idiot. Don't get paper money. Get real hard cash. And so I forwent that. They ended up hiring someone. I was like the first, I would have been like the first, like the next hire, like outside of the founding oh, yeah. team. And so that equity, and granted hindsight is 2020, would be worth so much. I mean, I I probably a, like $10 million. Or something. a billion, a billion dollars, yeah. dollars by Unilever. And I would have been, you know, I, I, who knows how much it would have been done been diluted, but a couple points of equity diluted across a couple rounds, but a billion dollar, I mean, it conceivably is a $10 million opportunity cost. Um, Andreessen Horowitz would have been phenomenal. And then I took path number three, which was, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Why would I do Thanks, this? Thanks, Dad. Yeah. So path number three, or, you know, what's behind door number three? It was like, you know, just reading the four hour work week. And I'm like thinking about being this digital nomad. And I'm like coming on investment banking where and I was like, I'm just going to apply this investment banking work ethic to anything entrepreneurial. And I'm going to own an asset and like create something, build wealth, but live from home or live from wherever. And so I took that. Um, and it was like a, it's been a really long painful path but now I'm finally like on the other side of the mountain um, and I can talk about what the pain has been but like the first entrepreneurial things I did was, was guy we started this coupon company called Couponji um, and he ended up my technical co-founder gets like poached by LinkedIn so that failed um, second thing this is still like while winding down my investment banking career at the very very end um, Pillow Pocket, we wanted to do like this crowdfunding thing. You can probably even find it on Indiegogo still. Um, it's a pocket in your pillowcase for your phone. It's the dumbest thing ever. Um, we ended up selling some to Google. We did Google branded ones. It's for people who like sleep with their phone, like investment bankers. Um, and then I, I, I could go through, we did protein beer, which is not even legal. Like you cannot m advertise like protein in your beer. So we did all these dumb things. And I learned a lot about marketing and I had Dollar Shave Club and I was like, dude, I need to get for real about this. If I'm really going to be this like, guy who works from wherever, I got to start like picking up some clients. And so I ended up working with um, a couple companies 
that were part of the Shark Tank that had been on the TV show. And then that led to working with some folks um, in entertainment world. Um, Dr. Phil has two kids. I worked with both of them. Um, and then I wrote a book and that kind of led to some bigger consulting engagements with um, LG's got this like subsidiary GSL labs and we worked with them and um, it kind of started blossoming and finally getting up track or gaining traction. And so now I own Deviate Labs, which is a growth hacking consulting agency. It's basically like digital marketing agency and it's about a half dozen of us. And I finally kind of have this lifestyle. I can go into other random things. Um, I, I, tell me where you want me to yeah, go. Yeah, the random things are fun, okay. but, then, but then, yeah, then, then let's get back to, to the growth labs. Yeah, yeah. Well, the random things are related because I really like embodied this growth hacking spirit. And I think if you go to a boutique, um, you're, and even at a bulge bracket, I think, you're, you're marketing a deal. And so a lot of people don't think about investment banking as marketing, but at the end of the day, you're doing a road show and you've got to have this really polished presentation. And like, there's a lot of aspects of copywriting that you kind of take for granted and don't even realize. And so coming out in 2012, um, when I left investment, I think it was 2012, <laughs> no, it might've been a little after that. Um, yeah, 2012 is when I left investment banking. Coming out in that time, growth hacking was becoming a thing. And I just kind of like, grabbed onto that moniker and called myself a growth hacker. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with the term growth yeah. hacking. Yeah. So Sean Ellis dubbed the term, he's a Dropbox guy. And so it's kind of like in vogue then. And then I just had like random people like hit me up on LinkedIn and got some clients through that. But um, some of the things I embody with this have been like my own wedding, which I growth hacked my wedding. This could be a longer story. It led to a death threat. Um, no, we got to hear this. Okay. We can talk about death threats. Uh, so, <laughs> so I'm one of the few people that went into investment banking, worked a hundred plus hours a week and still kept the girlfriend that I had in college. I, and really? you're married too. Did yeah, you go through Very that? impressive. I did the same thing. It was hard. It's hard, man. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. And so like, I don't know for, I, I, how did you like... How did you contend with the fact that you had like two hours of free time a week? Was it always like just an awesome dinner or like going to Vegas for birthdays? Uh, I, I just basically did a crappy job at, at both okay. <laughs> <laughs> until it didn't work anymore. And then I was like, all right, I can't, can't do baking. I'm choosing the girl. Yeah. Well, that was part of me transitioning to um, the other investment bank is because my girlfriend had graduated high or college and then um, she was staying in LA. And so that's one, one of the reasons. So one of the hacks or one of the, it's not even a hack, man. One of the survival tactics for relationship, relationship was living close, uh, at least in the same city. And then every time we would have like a time, like I would get a couple days off like a year and I would try to do one over her birthday. And so it was like Las Vegas, but it wasn't just like normal Las Vegas. It was like inviting and paying for like everyone else to come. And so all of her friends and stuff. And so anyways, it was fiscally irresponsible um but it was something that like allowed us to sustain this relationship but fast forward seven years i had been that guy like we were literally dating nonstop for seven years and all like i'm from minnesota and so like all my friends are already married and like her family is a catholic family and it's like why are you like no you, you like basically her family created this campaign to break us up and so uh, and they really liked me. That's the irony. They just knew that they had to like put my feet to the fire to finally get engaged. And throughout this whole process, like I just promised her whatever she wanted uh, for her wedding. And so by the time I got down on one knee, what she wanted, and this is always what she wanted, was a Hollywood wedding. 
And in Minnesota, a Hollywood wedding means like, you know, you roll out a red carpet and I don't know, like, I don't even know, like that's basically all it means, like a little bit of Hollywood glam. But to someone who grew up in LA and went to USC, a Hollywood wedding is like a wedding in Hollywood. And so like the next day I start calling on these venues. And so I was like, well, I'll just call the places where they host like Grammy after parties and like all this stuff. And like, there are all these like clubs oftentimes. And so I call them and like the first couple were like, dude, like we're not going to host a wedding. No. And then one of them, I finally got them. I was like, well, all right, I'm holding an event. Like how much is it going to cost for me to have this thing private? You know, cause a lot of the time it's a club and it's a Saturday night when we wanted it. Um, how much is it going to cost? And I was like, well, it's like over a hundred thousand right. dollars. And I was like, good God, like a hundred thousand dollars. How am I going to come up with this kind of cash? And so this is where I started getting a little bit clever with the growth hacking stuff. So um, the, the venue itself holds a hundred, a uh, thousand people. We had a guest list of 300. We thought we'd get maybe 200 to show up. And so that gave us roughly, uh, to be safe, I said 700 open spots, so to speak. And so I was like, all right. You know, I was able to foot some of the bill. I had like a $60,000 that I couldn't cover because a wedding, it's not just 100000 That's like for the space. You still have to have food and entertainment and the ring that you just bought is like hurting your pocket and the honeymoon. App, like, and yeah, you'll get some gifts, but it's not as much as, like, it's expensive as F, man. I mean, you you yeah, know every, that. everything. I mean, you had to rent <laughs> chairs and plates and cups and food. Yeah. And yeah, everything. Everything's super expensive. And so, all right, let's, I'll try to get to the, the growth hacking part of the story. So um, I took, I had $60,000, I divided by 700, it gets to like 80 some odd dollars per ticket, quote unquote. And I was like, all right, what, what's the catch here? What's the hook? How do I market these tickets? Cause I don't have a marketing budget for a wedding. And so I was like, well, I'll just have, I'll invite wedding crashers to my wedding. And so I, instead of when a lot of people will go out and do like the wedding photography stuff, we did a, a trailer for our wedding, which went with the Hollywood theme. But basically I told the guys like, dude, we need to sell love hard. And like, you can find it. Um, if you Google Ritterson wedding, you'll see it. But there's this trailer. It came across beautiful. I, I cherry picked a guy who had a video that kind of went viral. He had like a couple hundred thousand views on it. So I, I picked the right guy. Um, it only costs like four or 5,000 bucks, which isn't bad. And it's, you know, not too much. And then I started reaching out like cold emailing. So this is where I started doing more of my okay. cold emailing um, to a lot of these wedding blogs. And so these wedding blogs were like, is this fake? Like, what is this? And because I had this really polished website, I had this trailer, we're having it at this place called Boulevard 3, which I don't know if you know it, but they have uh, Obama when he was campaigning, he went and spoke there. Um, it's the former Hollywood Athletic Club. And so it's got this really storied history. They had um, the Academy Awards there, I think, one of the years, like in the 50s. It's awesome. And so we had this amazing venue. And bear in mind, I had never even signed a contract with the venue. Like they, I was just trying to raise capital for this thing. <laughs> so anyways, I market this deal and um, I, market this, I market this wedding by just reaching out to all these wedding blogs, assuming that they're going to be like, this is a unique wedding. No one's ever sold wedding crasher tickets. But all of them were like, dude, this is a terrible idea. Like everyone's like... No, we don't even talk about weddings that have never happened. This is not going to happen. This is fake. Like I got all these rejections. And so I reached out to Thrillist. Um, so Thrillist called me immediately and they're like, is this for real? And I was like, yeah, yeah, it's real, man. Like my wife's letting me do this. It's sick. And they're like, man, like I crashed a wedding once and it was super cool. And like, 
I really want to go like, and so like if we write about it, can we go? And I was like, yeah, like, let's do this. And so Thrillist does this article and gets a bunch of views. I get my, my website. There's like tens of thousands of views to the website. And I sold like a dozen tickets to this. And I was like, oh shoot, like now extrapolating. Now I have my sample set of data where I can extrapolate. I need like millions of people to go to my website in order to sell all this, all these tickets. And so at that point, what I do is I take this story. And so in the comments on Thrillist, people are like, this is the dumbest thing in the app. Like, I hate these people. And then the other people on the other side were like, this is just like the movie. It's going to be so amazing. And I took the love. I took the hate. And then I gave that to all the local, like, TV channels. So ABC picked it up immediately. And so ABC LA syndicated across the country. I'll try to short circuit some of this a little bit because it's getting long. Um, but I basically had a commercial during the bachelorette. I had my friends starting in New York who were like, dude, where's my invite to your wedding? Like, why am I seeing this on like, you know, TV? And so every single like time zone, people like start text message me like WTF, like, why have I not heard about this? This sounds so amazing. And so I have this, you know, syndicated across, basically a commercial during The Bachelorette. That led to an, a morning show with Univision, which is a Spanish mm -hmm. channel. I don't speak Spanish, but my wife does. So I sit there and be quiet. Um, and then it starts cascading. Playboy Enterprises reached out to me, wanted to do a micro documentary. ABC loved it. They wanted to do the Nightline. And if that worked, they wanted to like book the date for Good Morning America. Like, like things got real, real fast. And I'm starting to sell tickets, but I still haven't sold all 700. And then all of a sudden, like, I get this call from the priest. It was going to be a Catholic wedding. And he's like, what have you done? <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. What do you mean? He was like, what? And so he was on sabbatical. And so he's over in Jerusalem, actually. And he gets like this link sent to him about these two people who are going to have their wedding at, at the USC Catholic Church. Um, and he's like, this is terrible. And then the reason they had forwarded this is because someone had given a death threat to the Catholic Church for the wedding. And so there was like this threat of violence that had occurred. And so um, the thing was, is that was never supposed to be a part of this wedding. The church was totally separate. It was just to crash the, the venue, which was going to be fun and cool and crazy. And that was the whole intention of it. And so now this growth hacking, my wedding leads to this death threat where I have to unwind everything. I had a group on that was going to get fired out. Um, I had to refund all of these people. People from Canada had purchased tickets. Um, but basically taking this investment banking skill set of being able to write well, being ambitious, working like nonstop, like all of these things put me in a position where I was, I was basically on the cusp of raising $60,000 out of thin air and minus the death threat, everything would have worked out like a charm. And so long story short, we ended up still having it at the same venue. They just gave it to us private up until I think it was like 10 PM where they opened the doors to the public anyways. And so that was, um, the long wow. version of growth hacking my, my wedding and how it led to a death threat. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so that's got to be a great representation of what your company does now. A company comes to you and you're, you're doing that kind of grassroots guerrilla marketing thing for, for businesses. Yeah. I mean, that, everyone's looking for magic pixie dust. Yeah. And it's hard to find it, but I, I think occasionally we do a really, really good job. Um, and certainly like, that's a one good case study and probably it, yes, I think that's what we do. 
I, I try, I'm trying to like make, be a little bit coy about it. You still typically need money to, in order to start marketing your business. Cause a lot of people will hit me up with like these hopes and dreams. And as great as it is, I have plenty of companies that'll pay money for it too. Right. Got to pay you money. Got to pay money for the videos <laughs> and a little bit of paid marketing on social media. And yeah, yeah. The pixie dust can be there, but you need some uh, rocket fuel behind it. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Um, and so you're, Based in LA, you're doing this, you've got six people. What kind of companies do you work for? Yeah, so, I mean, it'll be, I, I, I basically, it's a reflection of my own interest, so it'll, it'll change a lot. Uh, it's a stable of venture-backed companies. Usually it's like the pre, it's like seed series A range before they hire in-house, and so we'll work with some of those, and then we'll have some hybrid companies, which would be like tech-enabled companies. A lot of them are like, um, a product company, Fourth and Heart is an example. They sell ghee, but they have like phenomenal brand and they sell direct to consumers. So we'll manage that part of the process. And then we have like really traditional businesses that we'll work with as well because I'm, try I'm very conscious about, uh, especially because I, I grew up in this terrible market cycle. Like I'm trying to protect myself from the startup bubble popping. Um, and so that's where we have like um, people who sell yachts and people who roof, um, like random stuff that, that pays the bills as well. Right. Everyone says, comes to you and says, make me a video that's going to, million people on YouTube are going to see. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to be like, well, it's not quite like that, but we'll try. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Got it. Well, this is so cool. So where do you go from here? Yeah. I mean, I think at this point I, I'm, I'm at a point where deviate ventures would be on the horizon. And so, um, being able to use the cash machine that I've created through the consulting side, um, using that to start deploying capital into companies that I want to work with. And so it's one of those things like I've been reactive and people will come to me. Oftentimes there's a little bit of selection bias where people who are coming to me might have other issues at play. Not, that's definitely not always the case at all. Um, Dollar Shave Club and no issues. Um, but when I'm working with folks, I, there's a lot of folks who... I want to work with them and I want to go and put money at stake and then come in at that point um, as kind of an advisor um, on the marketing side. And so I think from here, it's still venture capital, but it's, it's kind of raising my own micro fund and then trying to do it that way. Yeah. I mean, that's great. I mean, that's what big time angel investors do. They put their money into something and then they're like, all right, now I'm going to plug you. It's kind of like the shark tank. Now I'm going to plug you into my network and I'm going to help you grow and yeah. I'm going to use my expertise. And so it, it would kind of be a win-win because like you'd be winning on your investing side and then your company would get a new client. And Definitely. Uh, yeah. So that sounds really good. What do you need to make that happen? Yeah. I, so this is, uh, and I appreciate the tee up on this one because I have an affinity for the investment banking ethos. Like all the people who are listening to this podcast, like you're like savage hard workers and like you're going to win in life no matter what you do. And whether you, you know, go into PE or hedge fund, if you are looking to do something entrepreneurial, something that I wish I would have had coming out of investment banking was an opportunity to make a living wage because I went, like I basically survived off my investment banking bonuses and I lived with my in-laws for like years. And so like, if you don't want to live with your, and they weren't even in-laws at that point. Um, they were my girlfriend's parents. <laughs> they were fighting you to break you up. <laughs> that was part of the reason why I think at that point, but they were wonderful. And then we have a really close relationship. But if you are looking to go entrepreneurial, you're not sure what to do. Um, and you kind of want that living wage so you don't have to live with your girlfriend's parents. Um, what we're doing in 2018 is 
were partnering with people who would come in, acquire like a product or a small company, um, something with product market fit, and then scale that puppy out. And so we would be providing that cash infusion, acquiring that company. Um, you would be getting an equity stake in that entity, a very significant equity stake. So all incentives would be aligned to scale things out. And so basically putting a portfolio together of really savage former investment bankers. That's like what, where I come at. And I think that's the model. And obviously there's a lot of training that would be encompassing with that. A lot of the marketing stuff you learn by doing. And that's where, I mean, if you are curious, I wrote a book about growth hacking, um, but that would bring to bear a lot of different um, tactics and training to allow you to go out and start your first entrepreneurial adventure, have skin the game um, and learn and scale and all of the above. So Man, what a compelling call to action. I, I know. I have a, like a legit call to action, this one. Maybe yes. well, hopefully they made it to the very end of the podcast. They heard this, <laughs> and now they reach out to you. How do they reach out to you? Yeah, um, it's chad, C-H-A-D, at deviatelabs.com. D-E-V as in Victor, I-A-T-E, labs, L-A-B-S.com. Uh, I would hope that your servers are online and you have <laughs> they're beefed up because the Wall Street Oasis audience is going to come. I'm looking forward to that. Fast and furious here to yeah. Chad. Chad. This was awesome. Yeah, thanks for Really having me, fun Alex. conversation. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you. I'm Alex Grodnick, and thanks for listening today. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Feel free to send me an email, alex at wallstreetoasis.com, and be sure to check out the career guides on Wall Street Oasis. Thanks. <laughs>